so glad you're with us here on The Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. Our website's clark.com and our money-saving site, clarkdeals.com. Coming up in just a few minutes, going to a full commission stockbroker, deal or no deal, no deal in today's Clark Rageous Moment. And coming up later, what makes people's moods better? What improves their psychological outlook? Having more money or being more fit? Wait till you hear the answer. Physical fitness or physical fitness? So, speaking of being physically fit, physically fit, if I can get it straight, it's something that has become a real problem for 20-somethings, that a lot of people never having an opportunity to learn about how to handle money, personal finance, end up as adults not exactly handling money as well as I might hope they would. Well, there's a program that I read about in Market Watch that started four years ago at a charter school near Philadelphia. And this charter school program to teach personal finance was started by an English teacher. How's that for a surprising thing? And so this English teacher named Dan, came up with this totally off-the-wall program to try to overcome the fact that when high schools teach personal finance, that it becomes an abstract thing and students don't retain knowledge about it because it's all like just learning about things that don't seem to relate. What Dan came up with is a system where students could be referred to jobs by the charter school, earn money, but part of the deal for the referral and helping the students find work is the students then had to participate in the personal finance program involving the students being taken to open accounts at banks or credit unions, Uh, being taught about savings, being taught how to invest money, and the students can choose how much they want to earn over the course of a year, meaning how much they want to work. And a lot of them are earning around $5,000 a year working part-time school breaks and in the summer. And so there's real money involved and at stake, and the students are doing a great job understanding personal finance. They're being taught how investing works, how to put money into low-cost exchange-traded funds or index funds, mutual funds, things that most of us as adults, truth be told, be great if we understood them. And so this, what, what is referred to at the charter school as the finance program is teaching the kids not just the nuts and bolts, but it's the money they earned that they are then being taught how to live on less than what they make, how to save it, how to invest it, and learning the basics about how it works. 
the goal of the program is something that it's so weird, but it dovetails with something that that we did originally on our show back in the 1990s, and it was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And it was, there was a TV show called that once, I think. Anyway, so in our scenario, it was where we laid out for teenagers how much money they had to save each month from working in order to be a millionaire someday. And this program does the same thing, teaching these teenagers how to become millionaires and how low-cost investing and saving just a few hundred dollars a month from the money they're earning will turn them into millionaires down the road. These are lessons well-learned, and I think there's something in this that could deal with this educational gap we've got, this learning gap, with people being thrust into adulthood, not understanding the basics of money. Sue is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Sue. Well, hi, Clark. What a privilege to speak with you. Well, it's a privilege to have you here, Sue. (laughs) Well, my husband and I are empty nesters. We're in our early 60s, and we've got a big adventure ahead of us here. We're planning a move next month from Illinois to Oregon for a new job for my husband. So we're really excited. Looks like a great place and a good fit for my husband. So we have a natural preference for purchasing a home, but I know we've heard you say many times that unless your time window is somewhere around seven years, um, you should maybe consider renting. And we're kind of in that six to 10 year range for this next step in our journey. So we're at least thinking about renting. And that's just kind of a hard thing for us to get our heads around uh, because it just feels so different. But the last time we rented was in the 1980s. Nobody thought about identity theft back then, or if they did, we didn't know about it. You know, we had far fewer resources back then. Yeah, the term didn't really even exist back then. Yeah, well, now that we've got so many opportunities for nefarious actions, I guess, by people online... What has me rattled here is that we have found a rental. It's one of our options. We can still purchase instead, but the rental application requires our social security numbers. And I thought that was a mistake at first. I thought, oh, surely they won't require the entire number. Well, they do. So, And by the uh, way, every rental application is going to. Oh, man. Because they're well, I, all going to run uh, some form of background check on you. And yeah. and you'll have to, I mean, as part of the application, it says you acknowledge that as part of the rental application that a um, rental background check or credit check or whatever the wording will be, I don't know what Oregon statute requires for wording, but they'll have some kind of disclosure to you of what is going to be pulled, but mm-hmm. they need your social security number to do that. And yeah. I understand the concern about identity theft. This is one of those things that is a legitimate business reason for asking for your social security number. And it does add the risk that you could be an identity theft victim, but it's part of the process. Right. Well, we do have credit freeze, thanks to Clark Howard. (laughs) And so we, um, we found out which agency this little rental company uses that we would just need to call one of them. 
So let's imagine that we, we rent the place and we lock down our credit again after that's accomplished. But someone maybe along the way has gotten our social security number because this is all going to be transmitted unencrypted. That's the thing that bothers me the most. It's not through a, you know, some DocuSign or something like that. So if our credit is locked down again after this, but someone has our social security number, can they still, can some bad person out there still wreak havoc with our investments or with our credit? Or Very unlikely. Something? Very unlikely. Okay. I won't say it couldn't happen, but very, it would be a remote possibility and I wouldn't fret. I love okay. how cautious you are. <laughs> well, I'm kind of a worst case scenario person. And I, I even called the rental company and I said, so what exactly do you do with all this paper that you print out when you get it as an email? Um, you know, how do you safeguard the people who are applying? And the lady was very nice, but she said, well, we just keep it in a locked file drawer. Yeah, well, that, thinking, I mean, that's Clark life. Said? I mean, that that is really <laughs> what happens. Our information gets out there so many different ways. But you've done the right thing. You've done the right thinking. You're a skeptic. You have credit freeze in place. Credit freeze will go back into place after this. I, I would relax. I'd, be, I'd feel okay. Oh, Clark, thanks. And, and by the way, I would have encouraged you to rent no matter what when you first got to Oregon because it will be such a different lifestyle than what you've had in Illinois for a, such a long time. I think mm-hmm. you want to rent it first and figure out, does this really work for us? The, you know, it's yeah. a new job, all that. So I think buying would be a mistake also because you just don't know the area well yet. Very true. And, right. Thank and, you. And you may find, where's this been all our lives? This is where we're <laughs> going to stay forever. And then, you know, you figure out what neighborhood you want to be in, what part of um, Oregon you want to be in, and you just buy a place then. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Clark. Sure, and I hope the move goes well. (laughs) We'll hit the Oregon Trail. Perfect. Greg is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Greg. Hi, Clark. How are you today? Great. Thank you, Greg. So you got a question for me about saving money in an unusual way. Uh, Yes. I I was looking online, and I saw that there are some discount um, gift card uh, resale websites online that List everything from you know fast food chains to uh, box stores to to gas stations, and I wanted your take on those. Are they safe to to purchase? Because some of the discounts on them look pretty substantial on what you can save on on the face value of those yeah. cards. Yeah, there are several of these that you can go to, and you can see the value of various gift cards. And some retailers, the discounts are extremely small, uh, but common discounts will be somewhere approaching 10% where Mm -hmm. you're going to save a meaningful amount of money. And the idea of these exchanges is, let's say somebody gives me a gift card to a place I have no interest in and I'm never going to use it. I can put it on one of these exchanges and then it's sold there. The exchanges make their money on the buy-sell spread. They're going to pay me less than what you pay in order to get that card. So pretty much everybody wins except the retailer or restaurant because they all count on what's called in the lingo of the trade breakage. That's people Mm -hmm. who get a gift card that never redeem it. These exchange sites 
uh, actually get cards redeemed that wouldn't have been otherwise. You want to make sure that if you get a card from any of these and it turns out that it's uh, already been zeroed out or something like that, that they stand behind their sales. And so you, you, you would recommend them or you, you would, do you see any, any fallback or negative? Uh, the, only, the only thing we've ever had is negative feedback is when somebody buys a card and it has no money on it that it's misrepresented or that uh, you know somehow the money has been wiped clean before you get the card, that's the only danger point. And is it easy for you, if that does happen, is it easy for you to get that back? Your it depends on, the, depends on the exchange site. Now, there's a clearinghouse site that I'd like for you to start at. You may or may not have found Gift Card Granny. Okay. And it's kind of like an aggregator, and they have... Um, they only list cards for sale from sites that they believe offer good consumer protections for the buyer or the seller. Okay. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your, uh, your advice and your tips on this today. Thank you very much. And if you have a bad experience, please let us know. Okay. Definitely, I will. I, I appreciate your time today, Clark. Thank Certainly. you very much. I get so upset when people put their faith and trust in a stockbroker who turns out to be a hoodlum and runs off with all their money. And too often, the banking and brokerage industries just look the other way. It's today's Clark Rageous Moment. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous Moment. The New York Post follows the problems in the stock brokerage industry really closely and has a story here about people who have had their accounts wiped out by brokers who ended up being crooks, who went through all the money that they had been trusted with to invest for people. Now, this is a step beyond even the thing that frustrates me so much, and that's that the full commission stock brokerages do not follow what's known as a fiduciary standard, meaning that even if you get a legit person at a bank investment operation or a traditional stockbroker, they do not have any legal obligation to put you in good investments. They're allowed to put you in something in a mealy mouth standard called suitable, which is junk. And so they line their pockets and you get a much lower return than if you went to somebody who actually legally was bound to put your interests first, known as a fiduciary. But I digress because what's so much worse is when they just steal your money. The New York Post profile is about a crooked broker at Wells Fargo that ended up cleaning out $2.5 million almost from a family pile of money from a legal judgment. And the things they've been through to try to take action against Wells Fargo and get their money back. But what's the most disturbing thing of all that you need to be aware of, Wells Fargo just doesn't have its honest act together. 15% of Wells Fargo brokers have disciplinary actions on their records. Most of these end up being kept secret, but even the ones that are known of, 
have disciplinary records, meaning that they did something bad, something wrong that harmed a customer. Now, a typical broker will have a fraction of 1% likely. Wells Fargo, 15%. Yet another warning that Wells Fargo is a dangerous place for you to do business. Glad to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less and avoid getting ripped off. So I posed a riddle earlier. I said, what makes people happier? Physical fitness or physical fitness? Well, a new study published in Lancet, the British medical journal, finds that without a doubt, physical fitness leads people to be much happier people than physical fitness. Uh, They even measured in dollars, and then uh, they did various various tests to see people's uh, overall mental outlook. wonder how you do that. Anyway, but they found that people that were physically active were happier even than people who made $25,000 more a year than the person who was physically active. So you got two people. Let's say one of them makes uh, $40,000 a year. The other makes $65,000. The one who makes $65,000 is a couch potato. The one who makes $40,000 exercises. The one who makes $40,000 is a lot happier than the one who makes $65,000. Exercise is so very important in so many phases of your life, it makes a huge difference. Now, let me tell you, this was not a sample of 400 people or something. This was done with a study of 1.2 million people. I've never heard of a study that that analyzed 1.2 million people. So... The people that are active physically have much better overall happiness. And when I say much better, it's amazing how much better. Basically, 50%, generally 50% more happiness than people who don't exercise. And that, that's not a tiny difference. Now, the thing that's really significant to me about this is that exercise benefits you in so many ways in your life, way beyond just that you might have a better mental outlook. Because when you are more physically active, you have so many other benefits. If you think about health, you're less likely to be sick. You're less likely to have a medical reversal, medical conditions that maybe are going the wrong way, go the right way and get better. And, you know, I know if you're a longtime listener, you know I gravitate to stories like this because they are, what do you call that when they, they're affirmation stories because I'm obsessed with exercise. And truth be told, I'm speaking to you right now, I'm really sore in my upper body because I was at yoga before the show today and the yoga instructor decided to torture me and had me do uh, one plank after another after another 
and downward facing dog and all kinds of things that I'm just like achy up here, but it's a good achy. And, you know, I, I run and I work out on the elliptical. I've already done the elliptical today as well. I'm, am I a braggart? Anyway, I just, I know that for me, exercise makes an enormous difference. But when you see that here we are, a show about your wallet, and I'm telling you that people that are active are much happier even than people who make substantially more money than they do. I think that's clear and convincing how important you becoming an active person is. And if you are a couch potato, follow my one-minute rule. You know my one-minute rule? Today, walk for one minute. Tomorrow, walk for two minutes. The next day, walk for three. And walk every day, stepping it up one minute a day. And after a month, you'll be walking 30 minutes a day. And leave it there. But you'll make a huge difference in your outlook and your health if you do that. Nobody's going to be harmed from stepping up a minute a day like that. Vilash is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, how are you? Hi, Mr. Clark. How are you, sir? Great. Did I do okay pronouncing your name or no? Absolutely, sir. Absolutely. All right. (laughs) So, uh, sir, I have a simple question for you. Uh, My wife is not currently working, uh, but she plans to go to full-time school uh, very soon uh, and uh, maybe do a part-time job at that time. Um, so we're planning to do some kind of uh, retirement saving for her. I'm trying to see what option does she have and you know, what choices um, she have when she, when she does get a, get a part-time job. All right. So even if you were to subsidize money going into a retirement account, you can do that right away because okay. Okay. a non-working spouse is allowed to open their own Roth IRA. It's known as a spousal Roth, and they're allowed to put in the same amount of money per year as you are. $6,000 in a year is the ceiling. So uh, the, the law allows for a couple to be a one-income-earning couple, but both have their own retirement account. Great. So, so at any great. discount broker, she can open... Or, you know, one of the low-cost companies you hear me talk about. Okay. Uh, she can open a spousal Roth and put in up to that 6000 even if she did not earn that much in a year working part-time. Okay. okay. So when she does get a full-time job, um, will she continue with that, that account or open a separate account? She, no, in that same account, she could continue okay. to contribute moving forward. And if she ends up with a full-time job at a place that has a 401k with a match, let's say, that okay. would be where she'd really want to put her efforts saving money. But that's a ways down the road. And unfortunately, only about half of employers offer retirement plans and then not all of those even offer a match. So if she ended up at a place that didn't offer a plan or didn't offer a match on a plan, it'd be simple and easy for her to just keep contributing to that Roth IRA. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mr. Clark. I appreciate your time today, sir. And thank you what you do and your team does. Well, you're kind to say that. And I just want to say one thing before you go. Do you know who my favorite children are, those investment companies I'd like for you to look at for opening that Roth? Vanguard? Vanguard, Schwab, or Fidelity. Okay, okay. Any of those would be great. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I hope school is a great experience for your wife. Derek is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Derek. Hi, Clark. Thank you for taking my call. My Uh, pleasure. Long time, first time, and I just wanted to thank Kim for getting me on the air. She's been great. Well, wonderful. You know, um, she appreciates um, gratitude like that, chocolates, flowers, whatever you want to send. And my seven-year-old son who's with me is more excited than me to be on the air with you, I think. But, uh, he's six. Just, he said he's six. What's his name? Oh, you, heard, you heard him in the background. What's his name? Uh, Philip. Let me talk to Philip for a second. You want to talk to Philip? All right. Yeah. Oh, he ran, oh, he ran he's away. Gonna, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Derek, how well, can I serve you? Sure. So I have several term policies, um, and recently my uh, insurance agent approached me about turning one into a permanent life insurance. And I know how much you dislike uh, universal life and those types of policies. What was a little different about this policy is it has no accumulated value. It's just simply a longer term, from what it looks like, uh, term policy. And how much does the premium step up? Is is it a level premium that is a permanent level premium? Yes, that's correct. So currently I pay about $1,000 a year for $1 million of coverage. And the premium would be about (gasps) $7,000 for a million. (gasps) (gasps) What are you trying to do to me? Do you want me to die right here talking to you? Wow. Okay. Uh, There'd have to be a phenomenally incredible reason that you would want to go from paying one thousand a month to seven thousand a month. So I'm I'm starting not to shallow breathe. No, that's yearly. I'm sorry. That's a yearly. Yeah, I got it. Uh, So you go from one thousand a year to seven thousand a year for the million dollars. Okay. I'm I'm getting I'm getting back equilibrium. All right. (laughs) So, how? Oh, so you got a six-year-old, mm-hmm. and any other kids? Yeah, a seven-year-old. So you do have a seven-year-old. You were just mixing <laughs> them up. Exactly. Oh man! All right. So your insurable need is for a couple of different things. One, to get your kids to adulthood. Right. And are you married? Yes. Then to provide financial security for your wife and for her to be able to provide financial security to you. So can I ask how old you and your wife are? Yes, I'm 42 and my wife is 43. Okay, so I know of no reason why you would do this because you could buy, let's say you bought uh, a new 30-year level term policy. Let's just say you did. How many years do you have left on the million that you're paying 1000 a year for? So that one is, so I have a 20, I have a couple 20s and a couple 30s. So he was uh, talking about converting a 20, one of the 20 years, which is, um, uh, so I have about 15 years left on that policy. 
All right, so that would carry you to both kids being adults, which is the reason you'd have a 20-year, unless you've had a, a change in health that would make you uninsurable, I don't hear any reason why you would want to pay this additional premium to have a quote-unquote permanent policy because there's no insurable need for you to have that if you've got these 20 years that would cover till your kids are adults and you have 30 years that would carry through the remainder of your working lifetime. And then the other question is, does your wife own her own policies to protect you? Yes, she has a a million-dollar policy as well. All right. I think you're doing great. You got a lot of insurance there, and I don't see any reason or need for you to do a conversion to permanent. Um, The only uh, complicating factor is I do have a a – my daughter is special needs, um, so at some point she – you know, she may need additional money in a trust. And one of the selling points was that, for example, if I live to 82 – I'll have put 278000 in, but would still get the million-dollar death benefit. Right. I'm better so off just investing that money. I would rather see you open up an ABLE account. Has anyone talked okay. to you about ABLEs? Yes. So you can put fifteen grand into an ABLE each year, mm-hmm. and you can end up with, a, uh, I think it's a couple hundred thousand in an ABLE over time. I much prefer the ABLE because it grows tax-free, it's spent tax-free, and it doesn't hurt eligibility for public assistance for your special needs child uh, later in life. All right. And, Sounds um, great. I have a small amount of information on Clark.com about ABLE accounts. They, mm-hmm. they are cousins of 529 college savings plans. Yes, I've heard you mention them before. So that's where your emphasis should be, and buy an ABLE directly, not through any salesperson. Buy them commission-free. Very good. And you want the expense expense ratio on the investments in the ABLE, you want to be below about 0.4. Okay. Good to know. So that's that's what I would do as a choice. Leave the life insurance as you have it, and deal with the unknowns for your special needs child through the ABLE. That's what it's designed for. Kent is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Kent. It's great to have you here. Thanks for taking my call, Clark. Certainly. So you want to talk about something I've done on TV, and I think I've also mentioned on radio recently, and that is with the run-up in the price of gasoline, really think through whether you need to buy premium gasoline. Right. And uh, you made a comment on that, that um, <clears throat> you're basically telling people to run the, you know, the lowest grade gas that they can uh, and they're wasting their money. And there was only a minuscule amount of vehicles or cars that can use have used the benefit of the higher octane. Um, that's not all that accurate anymore, because over the last several years, the auto manufacturers have been um, going towards the trend of putting smaller engines in vehicles because they get good gas mileage. But then when they need more power out of that engine, they make a turbocharged or a supercharged version of that engine. And those turbocharged and supercharged versions uh, require higher octane. And you can do damage if you don't use the required minimum octane. And there's 
right today there's 25 percent of all the new vehicles being made have turbochargers or superchargers on them and that number is increasing so that's that's a pretty good amount of cars that require gasoline and what i would like to do is um, recommend to your listeners that uh, to find out what their minimum required octane is, is to open up the gas door where you fill your car up, and there'll be a sticker in there that'll say the minimum octane level. And you can put the minimum stuff in all day long if that's what it calls for, but if it calls for 91, uh, some people may not even know they have a turbocharged car. But, right. Uh, hopefully they know because they have that bit of hesitation and suddenly they think they're in a rocket. Right. And uh, some people may not know why that's happening, but um, if you put the lower grade gas in these cars that have way higher cylinder pressures, you'll get detonation, which is visible to a mechanic. And if you have issues with the engine later on, you can definitely be denied warranty work on it. So there's two standards now that you see at fuel filler doors when uh, they mention premium gas, and it'll say... Mm -hmm. It'll say premium required and give the minimum octane, or it'll say premium recommended. And if it says premium recommended, which is a larger number of vehicles, then you can safely put in, by the manufacturer's instructions, regular fuel. But if it says premium required, then, right. then you need to put in the premium fuel. Right. And, uh, you know... It's my, my wife's Mini Cooper and my Cadillac, and it's, it's becoming pretty normal now to, it's, to where it's premium required. Well, that would be a decision on my part to not buy a vehicle if it required premium because, you know, I'm just too cheap for that, Kent. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.